From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 235. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, Eero, and Luna Display. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Jason Snow. Hi, Jason Snow. Hi, Mike Hurley. How are you enjoying my country? I'm very well. I'm in Chicago, Illinois right now. We'll talk about why in a minute, because right now nobody cares about that, because all they huh? want Whoop. is our hashtag Snow Talk question, which this week comes from Jonathan. And Jonathan wants to know, Jason, when you make cereal... Do you put the cereal in the bowl first or the milk in the bowl first? Um, this is a weird question, which is uh, only appropriate, I suppose. So first thank you, Jonathan. Yep. Um, cereal first. Yep. Then milk. Yep. Because you need to use the cereal to gauge how much milk. And if you put the cereal on the milk, the cereal just floats on the milk and it doesn't tell you anything. I feel like what I'm about to say is the type of thing that you should never say. But I think people that put milk in first are monsters. Yeah, so I was going to say, uh, I know that in England especially, there is the great debate about tea, yep. about you do milk in first or not. Yeah, but it's the same deal. Milk go- milk always goes in afterwards. Yeah, I usually put the milk in later. you got to use what's in the mug or the cup as the way to judge how much milk is required. Yeah. It's simple. Right, because you can then add more milk. And also, until it reaches the level. If you put the milk in first and pour the cereal in, the milk's going to spill out the bowl, right? Because the cereal lands in the milk and it spills everywhere. That seems It could, or it's just going to float on top of the milk. And then uh, what have you done? You've just got uh, cereal that you have to dig through to get to the milk. It's The idea there is the milk gets poured over the cereal and it helps coat the cereal yes, in the milk. exactly. So it distributes the milk a little more widely and then you can, you can start. So yeah, that's my, that's my uh, story. On this show, we share lots of opinions about things, and yeah, we get lots of responses. You know, we talk about, like, again, like today, we're going to talk about what do we like more, Touch ID or Face ID. I guarantee the majority of feedback that we're going to get about this episode is people's feelings about the cereal or milk question. Yeah, or, or more broadly, <laughs> milk in first. No, just in um, general, which should never I will, happen. I, I will acknowledge the—I will occasionally put the milk in first in um, my wife's tea, only because I'm lazy— and if you put the milk in first and then put the tea in, stirs um, it for you. You don't have to stir it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still unacceptable. But it's not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was a bonus question from Jonathan. Jason, what is your favorite cereal? I don't have a great answer here. I, um, as an adult, I don't eat cereal very much, and when I do, it is some Kashi Heart Health. Uh, it's like little little hearts and circles that mm-hmm. are. It's boring cereal is what I eat when I eat it. I don't eat it a lot. Because technically, some people say oatmeal is a cereal, which I don't think I would say it is, That's but I have close, oatmeal sometimes too. The same. Oatmeal with some maple syrup, actually, in that. I, mm. I like that. And then um, my, but my all-time favorite, my childhood favorite, the go-to, the one that I didn't get very often and I loved it when I got it, Captain Crunch. Captain okay. Crunch, loved it. Loved I, it. Um, I had Captain Crunch for the first time in Portland, XOXO. There's actually right. a top four episode- um, re- like a, which is the Arments show, where we ate cereal from a yes, van and ranked from them. a van. And so. I, I'm not in that episode, although you may hear me in the background. I was witnessing it from behind, uh, like the 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 core group. I was watching as all that happened. By the way, I have to correct you, Mike. Mm-hmm. It's not Captain Crunch. Cap'n. It's Cap'n Crunch. Cap'n, Cap'n Crunch. C A P apostrophe N. <laughs> my my favorite cereal. Uh, is something which is very close to what is called uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch in uh-huh. America. But in the UK, it is called Curiously Cinnamon. 
which I think <laughs> is the is. best name for a cereal that has ever existed. <laughs> Curiously cinnamon. Hmm. How curious. Uh, cinnamon. From the people who brought you bizarrely vanilla and, <laughs> and strangely chocolate. <laughs> yep. That could not be more English. Okay, great. Good to know. Good to know. I knew it was going to be a good name. I knew it was going to be one of those brand <laughs> names that... that uh, is explained to an American, and the Mer- the American can't even understand what yep. just happened. Just what, huh? So that was great. Thank you to Jonathan for sending in this snail talk question. We've got another classic here. You can send in a question of any kind to open the show, and if it's weird and wonderful enough, it may just be chosen. Just send in a tweet with the hashtag snail talk. So I am in Chicago. The reason I am in Chicago um, is because I made a surprise appearance on Mac Power Users 472, which was recorded live in Chicago this weekend. Um, yeah, it was. And uh, I. I I popped up during the show, as did Rosemary Orchard of Automators, and we were guests on the show. Uh, the reason that I did this is I just wanted to come out and support the guys because they, you know, it, basically what happened was, Jason, I tell this story on the on the Mac Power Users episode. I, I but, heard it. I oh, heard good. it because I listened, yeah. Um, when Stephen came on board with the show, he sent me the first episode before it went up, and I could tell how happy he was, and I was so excited for him that I just booked a plane ticket to Chicago. Uh, and you, then here I am. How often are you in the U.S.? these days you you come to the u.s so often now uh, it's amazing this year on average i think it's every six weeks that's amazing well yeah. that is a uh, fun episode and steven tried out uh some new podcast equipment which is exciting so mm-hmm. that was that was also fun sounds great yep. and um and you got me looking at USB-C hubs mm. uh, because well i guess rose got me looking at USB-C hubs uh, because they were in that episode they were talking about it and um I'm not making any purchases now, but I'm intrigued by it because of my iPad. Because I don't have a, I don't have a Mac laptop with USB C on it, but yeah. I do have, uh, I do have an iPad Pro with USB C, and I'm intrigued by the idea of one of these hubs because there could be scenarios where I want to charge and have devices connected. Right? Wouldn't that mm-hmm. be for podcasting and things mm-hmm. like that? But I'm, I'm, I decided I'm going to wait because I would really like to know Apple's intentions toward. USB devices in iOS yes, going forward yes. before I do that. Like I, I like the idea of buying a little box. Um, in fact, if they add support for, for example, reading the files off of an SD card mm-hmm. that aren't photos or videos, um, that that's a great time to get a little hub that would give me maybe a headphone jack and an SD card reader and some USB ports and all of that. I don't really need a VGA port or something, but I do occasionally present to user groups and having those ports around might be good too. I'm in, so I'm interested, but um, it's entirely possible that many, many of those uh, those ports or adapter thingies would be uh, wasted on an iPad. And so I'm going to, I'm going to wait, but I am intrigued that the state of the art in USB C hubs is progressing. I bought one of those, um, hyperdrive so I, I i backed it on kickstarter this is like a little thing that's meant to hyperdrive i'm actually using one of their products right now for my uh, macbook pro which i'm recording on and you've seen them they're like these they're color coded to basically match the laptops and they just plug into the side of the of the laptop and it's like a a long strip of metal that has a bunch of plugs a bunch of ports in it well they created one for the ipad they had a kickstarter campaign and mine's actually been shipped so i might be able to talk about that next week if it's of any interest if the product is good we'll see um, but I backed yeah. one of those because I, I just saw it. I was like, oh, it looks like a good product. And I'm hoping, like you, that there will be more support for USB-C. Um, we got some good feedback from uh, Upgradian Zavante uh, about f- terminology for folding phones. 
Um, Zvanti suggests terminology that is used in the world of origami. So they've got two names here, the valley fold and the mountain fold, which are beautiful ways of describing it. So the valley fold is the Samsung because the screens go in on themselves, right? So the fold is at the bottom. And the mountain fold is the Huawei because it goes out on itself. Uh, so we've got valley fold and mountain fold. Mm. I'm going to try my best to try and incorporate those going forward because I think that's a really great and tidy way of describing the differences um, in the, the folding screens. Like it, when you say valley and mountain, it like visually you can get an idea, right? Like screen on the inside, screen on the outside. So that's really, really good feedback. I'm going to try and remember that going forward. That's way better than any and Audi. It's well, this is why because I I, I have no That's time. Gross. I have no time for that description. Mm. Um, it's not something that I want to be saying, and it's not something that I will say. So, valley fold and mountain fold. Um, so we're going to move into upstream now. I had some great feedback, Jason, uh, from new upgrade in David Chen, who suggested that we every now and then explain what upstream is, <laughs> which is a really ah. good point. Um. Upstream is a segment on Upgrade where we talk about the happenings in streaming media. So this is because this was actually this the idea for this started in Chicago like a year or two ago um, when me and Jason were talking. We were talking about Disney because they were kind of ramping up to do something, and we found that we both really enjoyed talking about the kind of the happenings in streaming media and and especially because it was becoming clear and it's now abundantly clear uh, that Apple, which is obviously the company we focus on on Upgrade, uh, is getting into this world themselves. So we thought we would prepare ourselves and prepare the Upgradians by talking about what's going on in the world of streaming media, and that is what Upstream is all about. Right, and a ghost uh, foretold that this will one day be its own podcast in the future, Mm -hmm. but we're making no announcements. We don't uh, you know, believe that necessarily, but but the ghost, yeah, what'll happen will happen in life in the future. Mm -hmm. We don't know, but a ghost... Ghosts, we're big with ghosts, is what I'm saying. Ghosts love upstream. <laughs> Jason, do you want to kick off upstream with this HBO news? Yeah, so um, so Richard Plepler, who actually has been on stage at an Apple event uh, when they were rolling out HBO Now on uh, Apple TV, I believe. He's this, been the CEO at uh, HBO for a long time, and before that, he, he worked in other jobs at HBO. He is uh, out he he has quit at uh, at HBO, and this is part of a larger story. So one guy losing his job is not necessarily a larger story, but um, there are major changes that AT and T is performing at uh, Warner Media. So they hired Robert Greenblatt, who was the head of Showtime and NBC. He is now in charge of entertainment. He's basically the president of entertainment at at Warner Media, and that includes HBO as well as the the Turner Networks, you know, TBS and TNT. Um, they have they've also done a reorg where um, a different executive is in charge of like the animation stuff, Adult Swim and Cartoon Network, and all of that. They put the sports stuff under Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN. And basically, what we're seeing here is that there that uh, the Warner Brothers structure. Um, and the Time Warner structure from back in the day uh, was full of these little fiefdoms. So, like, there were the Turner people, and there were the the like HBO was its own mm-hmm. little thing, and Plepler ran it. And uh, AT and T is not interested in that. Like, AT and T is like, this is not how we want this to be structured, which nope. is their prerogative and might even be right. I mean, uh, I think. Um, I think it's worth having that like organizations do get in weird structural things where there are reasons because of the people that you've got or because of historical things that don't matter anymore. The new owner comes in and says, this doesn't make any sense. It's their prerogative. They may be right. 
uh, it will lead to a lot of turnover and uh, layoffs and um, all sorts of things like that. It may end up making them a much better structured company going forward, but um, but there's a lot going on there. And then I think, and we talked about this on TV Talk Machine, um, my podcast with Tim Goodman from The Hollywood Reporter last Friday, uh, there is this sense that this is the end of HBO as we know it, but yes. we knew we, we knew you and I talked about it. We knew this was coming because the head, the, the AT&T guy who was brought in to be in charge of Warner Media, um, he stood up in front of a crowd of HBO employees. And this is uh, John Stanky, the CEO of Warner Media, who worked at uh, Southwestern Bell and AT&T for a long time, a phone company guy. <laughs> he stood up and basically said, we we need you to do more at hbo can't be a boutique anymore we want you to you know we want quantity quality over quantity isn't going to do it for us we want quantity too and uh at one point famously and this is a a presentation in front of employees at hbo plepler pointed out that hbo is profitable and i i totally get what he was doing which is he's trying to like pump up his employees a little bit and said look our business is good and so he says that and he's immediately undercut by stanky who says essentially not profitable enough woof and it was like okay writing's on the wall here at&t now owns your business they don't care that you're a little profitable boutique uh critically acclaimed uh television thing because they they think and, and and this is the funny thing is they think that's going to be irrelevant in the future of streaming media and that something of the size of hbo is not going to be able to make it yeah. and i don't know if they're wrong about that right but it is it is the the case that this was a, an organization that functioned pretty well uh generated lots of very you know high high quality uh, critically acclaimed award-winning content which everybody wants like netflix wants that everybody wants that that was profitable and successful but maybe not the business that is exactly what at&t wanted and their response is to blow it up mm -hmm. and like okay okay you the owners you you bought it you can break it but you may regret it right you may re regret that decision because you're taking an asset and um taking everything potentially that it was good at out of it and it doesn't have it doesn't retain its value if you if you take hbo and you mash it up into little pieces and spread it around your organization it's not like the same amount of value spreads through your organization necessarily you could just have lost all the value of hbo but that this is what um at&t is doing with more media is they basically are taking it all apart and then putting it back together again so plepler leaving hbo is uh symbolic in a way of just how much they're doing and greenblatt coming in and the other uh lieutenants kind of getting their areas that they've broken apart the old way that they did business at this company and um you know because they're serious about this like they want that Warner Media streaming service, especially, to be a major player, and they also have to navigate their existing, you know, cable brands and mm -hmm. how they how they move those forward. So it'll be fascinating to watch. But I do feel like the uh, HBO as we know it era is over. You know, maybe maybe we'll put the the stake in the ground when the Game of Thrones finale airs or something. Prepare yourself for a lot of think pieces about how the Game of Thrones finale is uh, emblematic of uh, the end of the of the old HBO and the beginning of a new HBO. Steven Spielberg hates Netflix. Um, uh, uh, apparently so. 
So Spielberg believes that movies coming from streaming services should only get as far as the Emmys and not be in contention <laughs> for Oscars. And he's going to be supporting some raw changes to the Academy Awards that are happening soon. Uh, well, that are going to be tried to be put into place soon. There's going to be discussions mm-hmm. about changes to rules, and he's going to be making this case. So the case that Spielberg and others believe is that they feel that the playing field is unfair when comparing the new studios to traditional studios. So the new studios being your Netflixes, for example. They say the budgets can be way larger than traditional studios. Like, for example, I think Roma's budget was like $50 million, and some of the other uh, movies in the category, like the foreign film category, were like $5 million. Um, they, uh, Spielberg believes, and others believe, that these movies are not spending enough time in the theater. They're just spending the, like, the minimum or the maximum amount of time that they need to be able to be in contention. Um, they're immediately available worldwide, 24-7. I'm not 100% sure why this is a problem. Um, and they don't respect the 90-day theatrical release window. These are the reasons why people like Steven Spielberg are saying, oh, no, they shouldn't be in contention for the Oscars. And I think this is bull. I think it's absolutely ridiculous, personally, um, yep. because this is a bunch of people who believe that an old way is the right way of doing things and they're scared that the new people are coming in and they're trying to beat them off. And I think what frustrates me the most about this is Spielberg has his hand in many pies with these streaming companies already. Um, And for some reason, he's now trying to protect them from the Oscars. Like the Oscars are this like magical thing that can't be tarnished. Um, When clearly the movie industry has changed so much since the Oscars began anyway, and there's been so many other changes, this is just Mm -hmm. another change that this industry is going to have to go through. That's right. This is is somebody in his 70s who doesn't like change that he sees in the world. But, you know, he was a beneficiary of the change. He wrought change in the movie industry, too. I mean, he created the modern blockbuster with Jaws, right? Like... It's yeah, it's ridiculous. This this is um, and from a pure like rule standpoint, because I as a as a sports fan, I'm fascinated by uh, how sports leagues um, change their rules in order to try to change the product and and make it more entertaining. And sometimes they fail, and sometimes they succeed. And there are always arguments about well, we want to keep the sanctity of what it's always been. And other people say no, you need to change because what you've got right now isn't isn't good anymore. And this is a little bit like that, which is like let's make some arcane rule changes in order to really uh, uh, stick it to Netflix. And like I, I think this is a challenge because movie and movies and television are um, basically the same now. Like the only, like literally, I mean, there, there are, there are differences, but like, it's the same acting pool. It's the same talent pool. Um, the quality standard can vary across them, but it's pretty much equal. Like you have good and bad prestige Mm -hmm. TV and prestige movies aren't really any different. The, all the, all the players are the same. Um, and so you end up being in this arcane thing. Like is, is the Oscars, this is like Oscar saying, we want to have a popular film category. Like really? Cause you know, you're you're basically creating the most artificial of barriers in order yep. to put things in in the corner, um, and and this is a good example of that where it's like oh no, um, it's like I I think I I might have mentioned it last week somebody uh referred to Roma as a TV movie the other week and it's yeah, like that, okay yeah. that that is a laugh uh, right yep. like Roma <laughs> first off it was a uh, should have won Best Picture and probably didn't because people in the Academy also feel like Steven Spielberg and don't like Netflix and the Academy voters are older. Um, but, you know, are we really going to take an award show and make it entirely about uh, preserving the theater owners 
business model that's falling apart? And, and is there really, well, we, this is a, a celebration of art, but only art that appears in certain places for certain durations yep. of time. Now they may go down this path, right? Cause the, the, um, the con, uh, con film festival went down this path. Um, but it seems like a mistake to me. I mean, Netflix went to the trouble of screening Roma in theaters, um, more, I think more theaters than they had to and longer than they had to. Um, and it, and it got a lot of applause from critics who said this, you should go see this in a theater, even though it's on Netflix because it's beautiful. Um, I, I just, I feel like this is, is completely misguided. So I, I'm with you. This is, this is, it's sad to yeah. have a, such a renowned director become an old man yelling at a cloud. Yep. Um, but that's what this is. Um, BBC and ITV are set to launch BritBox in the UK. This is a streaming service that is currently available in the US, which houses BBC and ITV's content. Um, they're looking to launch it in the UK now for about £5 a month. So in the UK, we actually already have on-demand services for the, both of these channels. So we have like the BBC iPlayer and ITV Now. So you can go on and you can get access to this content for a set period of time. BBC is, there's no ads, uh, but the content's only there for, say, like a month or something. Right. Um, and ITV Now, it's like a, a similar thing. Or it's ITV Hub, I think it's called, sorry. Um, similar deal, like you can go on. There's tons of ads, tons of ads on their content. <laughs> um, but you can watch it for a set period of time. Uh, and then, so the BritBox service would be adding what you know box sets, right? Like full seasons of television shows, yeah. which it's you can't like, get. On nobody the BBC. buys DVDs anymore, mm-hmm. so this is a streaming service that you can, instead of buying DVDs, you pay for the streaming service and you get yep. it. Which is particularly interesting for the BBC because a lot of their stuff isn't even available on iTunes to buy. So I don't know why that's the case. Uh, I'm a little bit annoyed about this, to be honest. I pay a TV license, and that TV license goes to funding the BBC. So now what I pay the TV license, which is money that I pay, and now I have to pay £5 a month to get the content as well. Uh, well, to get the content after it's gone off right, of its, but I its have broadcast many window. issues with the TV license anyway. You don't, you don't get to... Uh, well, okay, but I, I just want to be clear here. You don't get to walk into a... Do they have HMV anymore? I don't know. You don't get to walk into a store somewhere and just pick up a BBC DVD box set and walk out with it because you're no, a license holder. No, but, there's, but it's like... The TV license is fine for the iPlayer, but it's not. F- but then they don't keep any of the content, and then I would have to pay more. I mean, the re- the problem I have with the TV license in the UK is it's effectively treated like a tax. Um, like you can not pay it, but if you don't pay it, that you get harassed. Like they send you right. letters and they come to your home. But like I never watch BBC content, but I, I just don't do it. I watch Netflix and I watch uh, Amazon stuff. We don't even have our television plugged into an aerial; it doesn't receive a picture. Um, because we just watch everything online, but I have to pay the TV license because otherwise they try and make my life hell. So I have this whole issue, but yes, you are completely right. You are. I I I think this is a a fascinating thing though, because I think the TV license, I I, I'm sure that there was a really good reason why they built the licensing system in, in the UK. But I, as, as an American, I've always been fascinated by that. And, and kind of, I I find it bizarre because it, it, it's the worst case scenario of somebody saying, I only want to pay taxes on the services that I use. 
And you can't do that, right? Because no. everybody will then be opting out of every other part of it that they, like, I don't drive, I just walk, so I don't want to pay any of the highway taxes anymore. Well, no, you can't. You just, you pay the taxes and, you, you know, it goes into a big pool and then theoretically it comes out and is used for things, some of which uh, are for you and some of which aren't, but it's for the common good. And that's the thing about this is this, this strikes me as being like, there were cranky people who are like, I don't watch television. I don't own a television. Why must I pay for the BBC? They're like, all right, fine. We'll make it this thing where it's a license and only people who own TVs will pay it, which is almost everybody, but not you, sir, not you. It's like, why? I, I, I'm sure there are lots of great historical reasons why it exists, but it should just be it should just be uh, part of your taxes. And the, and the government should say, we will use some portion of taxes to fund the BBC because it is the gem of, of uh, Britain's cultural contrib- contributions to the world in the last mm-hmm. hundred years. And yeah, that's I would probably be enough. happier with that, right? Like if it was just a tax. Like my problem is like, you treat it like it's a thing you can choose. Well, right. And, and because it's public and it's funded by the public, I agree with you. I I think it's really sleazy of them to window content produced by the BBC directly yep. because uh, in the UK, right? Like I feel like if it's if it if the BBC made it with the with the British license fee money, um, it should probably stay on streaming f- on iPlayer basically forever. Not not for things they buy the rights to and stuff like that, but for the things that they own yes. and that that the license fee paid for. There is a really strong argument to be made that artificially windowing it so that they can resell it to you later is crappy. Yes, and this, I, I agree you, with that. You have hit the exact thing of why this annoys me. Yeah. Because it's like I'm paying for the content to be produced. I and then I can watch it online for free but only for 30 days. Oh, you missed episode one? Well, you actually now can't get it. Like, I've had stuff like that, where it's like, oh, you missed an episode? Well, you can't buy it anywhere. You can't watch it now. It's like, what am I doing then? But anyway, I just find this, five pounds a month isn't expensive, um, particularly, but it's like, and I like the idea that, that, I like the idea that that theoretically they are, um, this, they had a reason to put effort into doing things like DVD releases of old TV shows and restoring things and getting bonus material and all sorts of other stuff like that when they had a DVD sales stream and the DVD sales streams are going away and the Blu-ray sales streams. And I think that's really what they're trying to do here mm-hmm. is like give us a place where people who want this old old stuff can get it um, and we can have the money so that we can put the old stuff out there because a lot of the old stuff doesn't just appear right they've got to actually spend money to get it on yeah I, I saw a whole presentation about this about the people who restore the doctor who episodes um and it's kind of amazing how much technical effort goes into that but uh but yeah i i i hear you that this is i i get this is cool in the sense that there's a lot of content that's not that's from britain that's not available in yes. britain yes and it's good that it will be available now i think it's fascinating the bbc and itv who are direct competitors in the uk i can't um, i couldn't believe this because I, I didn't really know anything about Britbox. i thought companies which uh, there was a company that was buying the content it is wild to me that the two main networks who are in direct competition joined together to make this service and right. then it was it for it was for America and Canada and it yeah, was just like so whatever weird. It's and so, then rolling so it out weird. in the UK but um they they want to compete with Netflix is they basically do. the answer yeah yeah it's so, weird we'll see we'll see i bet i end up signing now up i'm going to get a lot of angry people who explain why the uh, license fee is the is the best way to go mm, i just wait. feel like uh i just I, those kinds of of tax schemes bother me when it's when it's sort of like i don't use that so i don't want to pay for it anymore it's like well you know 
if if that that would be a a, a really you say that now, but if every road you drive on is a toll road because nobody wants to pay, or you know every service you use is you have to pay for that even though it's a government service because nobody wants to pay for that thing but they want to pay for this other thing, like like that. At what point is that ridiculous? And I would argue when you have a, a a separate license for owning a television set, or as we now know, Mike, right, a device that can view mm-hmm. televised content. Yep. Wow. Like if you want to watch the BBC on a on a phone, you need to pay for a license, which yeah, is it it's asks bananas. You. It should it's go silly. Away. Like the way it does it's so funny. It's like, do you have a TV license? And you have to say yes or no. That's it. It's just yeah. So weird. Let's take a break and thank FreshBooks for their support of this show. FreshBooks are out there to try and help freelancers save time. Because of FreshBooks' amazing tools, like being able to very quickly and easily send out invoices, track your expenses, and get paid online, FreshBooks has reduced the time and hassle for their over 10 million customers to take care of their paperwork. When you send an invoice, when you email a client an invoice for FreshBooks, they will show you whether that invoice has been opened, they'll show you whether that invoice has been printed, and every single time somebody goes back to look at that invoice, you can see the trail there. So it puts an end to those guessing games of did they get it, did they not get it? You don't need to send those awkward emails because with FreshBooks, you have that information in front of you. And talking about awkward emails, if you ever have to send out emails to people and say hey you know you've passed the time that we we set for the invoice like you're late on the payment could you please send it to me you don't even need to do that because FreshBooks can automate late payment email reminders for you if you want that so you can spend less time chasing those payments and more time being focused on the thing that it is you actually want to do if you're listening to this and you've still not tried out FreshBooks please 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 give it a go if you ever send invoices to anyone Trust me, FreshBooks are the best. I have been using FreshBooks for nearly five years now, and I wouldn't try anywhere else. FreshBooks are offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of this show with no credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com upgrade and enter upgrade in the how did you hear about us section. Our thanks to FreshBooks for their support of this show and FM. So we actually have a little bit more um, upgra- upstream related news. So this is, much. Uh, Upstream. So this much. is uh, in regards to, to a report about Apple. So this was in the New York Post today, um, basically stating that Apple executives are meddling too much in the content <laughs> that's being produced. Now, we've heard this being said before, yes. uh, but this article has a bunch of quotes from some sources in the TV industry that I think are particularly interesting to discuss. So I'm going to read a couple of these quotes to you. So this comes from the New York Post. Right. That's a good disclaimer, by the way, the New York Post, which is a tabloid newspaper that is uh, and this is a poor, I would say this is kind of a poorly written story, but uh, it's worth evaluating the quotes that they've got. Agents and producers can't stop griping about how difficult Apple is to deal with, citing lack of transparency, lack of clarity, and intrusive executives, including Tim Cook, the CEO. That doesn't surprise me, though, right? Like, of, of course, they're not going to be transparent, and of course, they're not going to be uh, exactly. clear, because that's Apple's way. Um, they're, they're not going to tell... I don't, I'm not saying this is right, but like this part isn't a surprise to me. They're not going to tell the TV executives when the service is launching. They're not going to do that because yeah. that's not what yeah. Apple does. There's right? obviously going to be friction here that is unsurprising um, that there would be friction between the... In fact, the, the story says at the end, um, and, and one of their uh, sources says this too, which is like Silicon Valley's culture is different. And mm-hmm. Netflix was like this when they started too because 
they were a Silicon Valley company and they they were secretive. And this is Apple, which is even more secretive. So, like, of course, there are culture clashes on the on on the information front. Of course, there are. Family friendly is happening again. So another quote. Tim Cook is giving notes and getting involved, said a producer who has worked with Apple. One of the CEO's most repeated notes is don't be so mean, the sources said. (laughs) Funnily enough, I can see Tim saying that. Yep. Like, I can see that. Um, I want to talk about this quote, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, But I have a little bit more. So uh, they are making big changes, firing and hiring new writers. There's a lack of clarity on what they want. A lot of the product is not as good as they hoped it to be, he said. Also, Apple want a positive view on technology to be displayed in their shows. Yeah, so... um... A couple of notes here. The classic note of why is somebody talking about this mm-hmm. um, to the New York Post? And it feels to me very much like somebody is kind of um, disgruntled <laughs> about, like, the firing writers thing really set me off of, like, this sounds like a producer on a show that was having some problems and that they made some creative changes and that this person is upset about them. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that was a bad move or a good move. It just is a person who's upset about them. And it feeds into the narrative that Apple is uh, more hands-on here. It's bad. It's trouble for Apple because the, the reputation uh, of Apple in the uh, entertainment industry is going to affect who is willing to make deals with them. So uh, be, you you can be sure that everybody who's involved in making shows for Apple is going to talk to their friends and colleagues about what the experience is like. Mm -hmm. And that will make it harder for Apple to produce um, shows with uh, top flight talent. If they, if the, the response is that it was a nightmare that said, if it's not surprising given how many shows that they funded that um, there might be some shows that have been uh, troubled and that Apple has looked at and said this, we are not satisfied with the quality of this. I'll just, I'll, I'll invent an example here that might not be it at all. But since we talked about Steven Spielberg earlier, what if their Amazing Stories deal came through and they looked at the scripts for that that were being generated and they're like, no, no, this is not, this is bad. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was bad or maybe they're meddling and it was perfectly fine. Um, I'm not surprised that there might be a note that Apple is not interested in doing um, doing black mirror yes (laughs) right yes right which is specifically that but again um there are issues about who's going to work with apple i also get like every network and and you know netflix is a little different because netflix is sort of everything now but like every if you look at tv networks you know they have tones and they have personalities Mm -hmm. the best of them do where you get a sense of, if I'm watching a show from these guys, it's going to have this sensibility. If I watch shows from these guys, it's going to have this sensibility. And I don't think it's wrong for Apple to say, here's what we want to be. We want to be optimistic and we want to be, um, you know, we don't want people to, you know, we don't want this thing that's mean and we want to be you know, positive about the future and things like that. That's okay to a point right but beyond a point it ends up being the enemy of good television and that's the push and pull like um as a star trek fan one of the things that happened when they brought back star trek for the next generation was gene gene roddenberry the creator of star trek had this sort of like over the over the course of the 15 years since he had done the original star trek or 20 years had had created this almost kind of cult-like sense around him of like this view of the future where in the future humanity is perfect and there's no conflict and uh, and there's no money and everybody gets along and then the writers were like how am i supposed to write a drama where there's no interpersonal contact conflict between the characters and everybody's perfect 
Um, and the answer was uh, they they couldn't, and the show wasn't very good until he was no longer closely involved. And that's the that's the flip side of this, right? Is like is Apple trying to flatten the content out so much that it's going to be uninteresting, or is Apple just exerting um, some really high level comments about what they want the the direction of the of the service to be? Um, so this could be good and it could be bad because you know it could just be somebody who's been out of shape that their that their show got a thumbs down. Mm-hmm. I have a question though. I don't have an answer to this. It's just a question. If you are paying for the content to be made, do you get a say? Should you get a say? I feel like this isn't unique to Apple. Like I can only imagine financial backers have always done this stuff when it comes to movies and TV. Like if you're paying for it and you have some thoughts on it, you're going to give them and probably they're going to have to be integrated or you're going to have to deal with talking the financial backer down, right? Like I feel like this can't be something that is completely unique. As you said, the article even cites that Netflix struggled with this initially. I feel like this isn't, I feel like this is a fun story to write, you know, and, and it, and it, does enforce what we kind of thought was going to happen. But I can only assume you could write this kind of thing about any movie that's ever been made. Yeah, probably so. Or at least a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I think, I think this story, so this story is problematic because it's, it's very hard to, to judge. It feeds into existing narratives. Um, it's from the New York Post, which I don't find a particularly uh, reliable uh, news source. Uh, and they're a tabloid. They are going to hype it up as much as they can. That said... There is probably some truth in here. Yep. It does reinforce the narrative that Apple yep. may be putting a little bit too much uh, control over this. And that the narrative is that Apple doesn't understand how you make good television and Apple doesn't care, which means they're going to get the television they want, but it might not be good. That said, there are high level executives who they hired who are TV development executives who are running this service. And one would hope that they're... Um, there being some well, sort of a buffer, they are the but barrier. you don't know. That's why they were yeah. hired, right? Like uh, you, you would assume that Tim Cook and or maybe Eddie Q knew that for them to do this, they needed a buffer. They needed someone who could, or people who could take what they thought and translate it and vice versa, right? Like Otherwise, Eddie would have just done this forever, right? They tried it and it didn't work. When they were really hands-on, you would assume, in Carpool Karaoke and Planet of the Apps, those shows did not work. So yeah. you would assume that these executives are smart enough to be like, oh, if we're going to do this seriously, we actually need people who can sit in the middle of this and manage it for us. Also, the idea here that um, what you said about, like, if it's my money, I get to have some say. They're trying to figure out what this thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got creative people making shows for a product they don't know what the sh- like, product is. They right? have so much on the line with this, right? Exactly. Like, like if, they spend it, a lot of money and they yes. want and and Apple are control freaks, right? They mm-hmm. they want it to be exactly what they want. And you've got a producer who maybe has gotten a brief, but then they see a script and they're like this is a little bit off of what we were talking about and there's some feedback there and I think that's kind of natural. Um I get that it could be frustrating, but they do they do get a say. I think the the post story makes this like many notes from Apple executives seeking family family friendly shows. Well, that that might literally be this goes past our standard that we're setting. Like mm-hmm. this this pushes it too far. Dial it back a little bit. And Tim Cook is giving notes like I I it's possible that Tim Cook is literally writing things down on scripts and saying don't do this, although I'm really skeptical about that. Yeah. My guess is that it's it's notes on 
big concepts or on where they draw the line on certain things in terms of the tone they want to set. Um, they This story says, oh, well, C- Cook has been seen on the set of this show that they're doing um, in in Vancouver C, which I think is the Jason Momoa show that has got an enormous budget. It may be the most expensive TV show ever produced is the rumor that I'm hearing. Really? Um, uh, well, of course he would go to the set. But that doesn't mean he's giving notes on the set, right? That's that's not the same. So I don't know. Um, he's giving feedback an agent said of Cook. Oh, of course. Uh, but but so this could be good. Again, this could be bad. He could be Tim Cook could literally be saying, "I don't want you to say that bad word, uh, Jason Momoa, on the set of of C in Vancouver." But probably not. That's probably not happening. But it could be, and that would yeah. be bad. But it's like it's funny, like the idea of him visiting the sets. Of course he is. Of course he is. He's paying for it, and that's fun. Right? Who wouldn't do that? And they want to launch this thing, and they want to be proud of what they launch. And if you've got a dog, they know they're going to get beaten up if there's a, 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 yep. a lousy show that they launch with. So yep. the stakes are high, but at the same time, they also hired the professionals to do this job. Mm-hmm. And and that's the that's the the thing that that makes me a little more queasy is like, should Tim Cook or Eddie Q or somebody else be giving notes, or should it just be? I think the ultimately, TV like, there's going to be some stuff. Right, like it's not going to be everything. They're not going to be like you say, not going to be looking at scripts. But every now and then, they're going to see something and they'll have a view on it. And I, yeah, it's also you know. possible that they're good cop, bad copping them here. Yes, which I'm just I, I don't know that for sure. But like when I think about Ehrlich and Van Amberg, the guys that they bought or that they hired from Sony to do <laughs> guys this, that they bought, they, they bought from Sony. Purchased them from Sony. Well, Sony, you know, Sony <laughs> sells Walkman and uh, <laughs> they still sell Walkman, and they also sell TV executives. Apparently, anyway, those guys they hi- they rolled out their money and they hired those guys away from sony um it's possible that though those guys are you know that tim cook has basically said this is tim i, I can be the bad cop right kind of thing where it's like literally um yep. they use apple as the boogeyman to uh to say hey hey friend you know ron moore we have some notes about this oh apple you know apple Tim Cook made it clear to us that this is a line we shouldn't cross. Uh, even if they feel that themselves, there may be some of that, like, you know, but we have a great relationship, but, oh, don't, you know, don't blame us. But this is, and, and that, that happens as a parent, I can tell you, uh, you definitely can do the good cop, bad cop thing. It's a, it's a technique. And they maybe, maybe there's some of that going on where Apple is the boogeyman and they're used uh, as a kind of like, oh, well. Uh, Tim's got his standards, but I'm working with you and we'll, I'm on your side and we'll work it out. That's also possibly what's going on here. So, you know, it's fine. I, I think every time we talk about this too, we get people who say, who's to say that a show that's family friendly or doesn't have swearing or nudity or ultra violence is a, fundamentally a bad show. Some people don't want to watch that stuff. And I totally agree with that. Um, the thing that we always say is there are a lot of people in Hollywood who want to make shows where they have, they can do whatever the hell they want. And we don't always get to do whatever the hell we want. No. But if you're a an A-list person who everybody wants to hire and Netflix doesn't care about the content of the show as long as it's good. They don't care about the nudity and the violence. And have you ever followed one of Netflix's Twitter accounts? They swear on the Twitter accounts, right? Like Netflix's brand do- is is that there's no limits for, for the stuff that they'll produce. And if you're an A-lister, it's just easier to work with somebody who is not going to bug you about items in your script that they think are too mean. That's the that's the deal here. Not that there can't be great content that doesn't have nudity and violence and bad words. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not the issue. 
All right, so let's talk a little bit uh, about marzipan. So we've all right we, gear shift. It was like Ooh. last. I think it was last week uh, or the week before. There was the Mark Gurman report, kind of setting out the three-year plan that we're going right. to see the Marza plan. Grand, you could call grand, it if you oh wanted boy. to. The grand three-year Marza mm-hmm. plan. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Steve Trouton Smith uh, has written a couple of blog posts. Well, I don't even know if you could call them blog posts. They're more like... They're like tech notes. Yes, they're wild. (laughs) Uh, Because he's basically built some tools and exposed some stuff to enable iOS developers right now to bring their apps over to the Mac in some form, which is using the technology that is in Mojave that allows Apple to do it, right? So Apple have news and home, right, and stocks, Uh, and the voice recording app. And so there is some underlying technology in the current shipping version of Mojave, which allows these iOS apps to run on the Mac. And through some some incredible digging and and kind of reverse engineering, which is way over my head, uh, Trout Smith has created some tools. So, of course, James Thompson uh, now has a working version of Marzipan PCALC. So James has taken the iOS version of PCALC and has put it onto the Mac. Um, and he's he posted a bunch of tweets of him doing this. I'll put some in the show notes. And James says, and I, I think this is a really interesting point. So this is something that he was tweeting. So this is just a proof of concept. I have no plans to replace the current Mac version as soon as Marzipan is available. I'll only do it if and when the app is better than the current native Mac one, because James has a Mac version uh, of PCALC that is running right now. And I'm wondering, Jason... Do you think that that specific point is going to be something we hear a lot of? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I think this is the balance that Mac developers who have existing Mac apps are going to have to deal with. The idea of I've been maintaining two different apps which share code, but there's an iOS version and a Mac version. And wouldn't it be great to have it just be one? But if I do this now, these things are not going to be there. Mm-hmm. And that's no good. Like, like, uh, and, and and we're you know they're they're playing around with the marzipan that is shipped that shipped last fall and is not supposed to be used right so you can't really judge it uh, for what it lacks because the, it, there's a reason Apple didn't ship it to anybody else and Steve Trotton Smith has figured out how to make it work anyway and it's fascinating just to look at it and see what the details are and the the work you need to do in certain areas to add things to a toolbar or add pop-ups and how the menu you know, how you add menu items and things like that. But uh, it's fun to see the details because we're getting a little bit of a preview of how, of what it might look in a final version. But you have to make that that decision. Like, do I want to take features away, take functionality away from my users on the Mac just to make my life easier? I, I, I would hope that most people who are doing Mac apps, especially longstanding Mac apps, will choose not to do that until there's, there's probably a point where the balance shifts. And it may not be... Um, possible with the new version that comes out the first wave may be apps that are um that don't exist on the mac or that are bad on the mac that's the other thing i thought you know james actually uh has been doing pcalc on the mac forever <laughs> like literally forever for as long as i've known him but um it, it is there are also apps out there that are very much like oh i guess we'll do a mac app and the mac app doesn't really stand up to the to the iOS app. And those will be easier choices, right? To say, we can just put this on the Mac and and we can solve this problem and it'll save us a lot of effort. Plus there will be iOS apps that can't come to the Mac right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And Overcast is an example we use where, uh, you know, the, that moment where you realize, oh, um, you know, Marco can, can write Overcast for the Mac now because he doesn't have to write a Mac app. He can take his iOS app and just make it a Mac app. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. But for James, I mean, it, I would say 
marzipan will be a success when developers look at it and say, yes, I can take my iOS app and make it as good or better than my Mac app. But that may be a while. I do think as well there could be, there's like a good enough point, right? Like, yeah. I know you, you're, you're right. That for tipping, a lot of it's people, that tipping point. For a lot yeah. of people, that tipping point is going to be when it can be better. Like, but for, I think for also another huge bunch of people, it will be when it can be close enough. Like when it can at least offer the functionality that you need, it might not be as good as the Mac version currently is, but if it allows you to be able to really streamline your development, maybe it will work better. And and, and I, whilst I know there's going to be a lot of frustration for people during this time period, I do think, I do think that there is a better future for the Mac on the other side of this. Like, it's gonna, it's yeah, it's gonna shake up a lot of what people think Macs are and what they look like and how they act. But it's gonna breathe a bit of life into the platform, I think, like new, fresh life, which is gonna be exciting. So anyway, yeah, using agree. using Steve's tools, uh, James was also doing some stuff with resizing the windows, which I found very interesting. So he had the full iPad view, and then he could shrink it down. And when he got it into a certain size, it kind of snapped into the iPhone-like split-screen view, right? So like the skinny split-screen view on an iPad. And this just makes me wonder, what is this iPhone delay about? Mm. Like why... What they So German said that we're going to get this year will be iPad apps, and then next year is iPhone apps. And I just feel like that makes it even more confusing to me that like, imagine if you can do this, right? Like if you shrink the window, it just switches over to your split screen view, right? So it's using the size classes. And once you hit a different size class, if your iPad app observes it, it's just going to show the different size. And it makes me question the iPhone thing. I think you just answered your question. I was going to say this is a conspiracy theory, but I don't even think it counts as a conspiracy theory. Um, what makes something an iPad app and an iPhone app, a universal app, mm-hmm. is th- its ability to uh, be displayed in different sizes. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like what Apple may be doing here is, and this is the conspiracy part of it, is saying, if you can't be bothered to make your app work at different sizes, it can't run on the Mac because the Mac Mac users demand the ability to resize apps and if you use the size classes and you've got it working on the ipad and the various different sizes of ipad you're going to be able to do it um, and use it almost i mean through the lens of quality for users and user expectations basically crack the whip a little bit on developers who have not bothered to develop an app that wasn't uh that that goes beyond the iphone like right like it's, this is your motivator like you really need to do that now like this is the platform you need to do it we're not going to have uh, a, a situation where Mac users have this little thing that's shaped like an iPhone and can't be resized. That's like, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, that may be the motivator here. But that's not the, technical. The, the not part a technical of that, though, thing. is like that's not going to change in theory, right? From year one to year two, and that's why it's confusing to me. Like, what is going to happen in that time period for the iPhone apps to be good? What may happen is that they give a warning this year that says um, apps uh, aren't going to be in the App Store if they don't uh, do size classes uh, next year. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. All right. All right. Now, I now we got a conspiracy theory. I get all right. You. Yeah. It's not. It's not that iPhone apps will be available. It's all apps will be available because all iPhone apps are universal. Oh boy. All right. Maybe right? that's it. Maybe that is it. Who knows? Like it's. If you think about it, it's kind of amazing that Apple has allowed this to go on, where you can design these apps that that will resize in the various sizes of iPhone, but won't go beyond that. And I I could totally see them saying, you know. 
part of being on our platform now is having the ability to have your apps dynamically yeah. resized for all sorts of different screens. And if and, and you need to do that. Just like bottom line, you have to do that. And, and if that happens, next year. that's not only good for the Mac. That's bloody good for the iPad Because for the iPad too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it makes sense to me. I understand, you know, you may think, oh, my, my, my app is for iPhone. It shouldn't, it wouldn't work very well on the iPad, et cetera, et cetera. I get that, but boy, that would be great. Like for, for users that you would be yeah. able to use these, these apps on all devices. And again, I also understand the complexities of business models. And then you're offering one app where you could have two apps, I get all of it. Um, but as a user, I would, I would love that very much. Um, and then you know maybe this is where all the subscription yeah. stuff needs to play in more more yeah. seriously. But I like I like this is why I like what Steve Trouton Smith is doing because he's yes he's looking at Mojave um, marzipan which don't have the Mojave marzipan by the way it's made with sand. Um, but uh, he is giving us a, a view into what this is going to be like for developers at a time when Apple doesn't want to talk about it. And so I find that, that that has a lot of value. And his posts, which we will link to, are extremely technical. So if you're not a developer, you will probably find, especially the one that's got all the giant code in it, uh, to be uh, hard to understand. But the the idea where he shows sort of like, here's how you take a basic thing and use his tool called Marzipanify to get it running on the Mac uh, based on the iOS, you know, I think simulator builds. Um, and then the work you need to do as a developer to take it further so that it becomes something that feels more Mac-like and that Apple has already in, in the marzipan that ships in Mojave built that, uh, those tools in and presumably those will only get better. And that's what I found fascinating about this is we get a little bit of a view into how Apple is building this system that it's going to roll out this year in three months and say, this is how you build unified apps on Mac and iOS and have them be Mac apps. Because I, I agree with you. Um, I think this is ultimately going to be good for the Mac because the alternative is is completely static, like nothing, right? And and, and this is better than that. So um, yeah, so thanks to Steve Stratton Smith for doing these articles and for inventing this Marzipanify tool. And, and thanks to James Thompson for finally taking a day and turning off system integrity protection on his iMac and, and building oh a, a Mac version of iPad or, or of, of uh, pCalc from the iPad version because that's uh, fun. Is that what you have to do? You have to turn off system integrity I think you, protection? I think you do. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds really scary. Yeah. It's meant to. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's the point, right? If you don't want someone to turn something off, give it like a horrifyingly scary name. Mm-hmm. All right, today's show is also brought to you by our friends over at Luna Display. They are the makers of the only hardware solution that will turn your iPad into a wireless display for your Mac, meaning that your second display that will be super portable, can be with you anywhere, and have basically zero lag and amazing image quality. Setting up extra screens is a fiddly affair, but Luna Display couldn't be easier. You just plug in a lovely little dongle into your Mac and you're good to go. Everything works over Wi-Fi, but if you're somewhere without Wi-Fi connection, maybe you're on some kind of plane or train or an automobile, you can just use a USB to connect them together and you'll be able to still take advantage of that multiple screen glory. It's super simple to get set up and then you'll have your extra screen real estate whenever and wherever you need it. Luna Display is a complete extension for your Mac. It supports external keyboards, Apple Pencil, touch interactions. It turns your Mac into a touchscreen device and the all-new Liquid Video Engine brings significantly reduced latency 
latency and a faster screen refresh rate. I absolutely love using Lunar Display on my iPad. It makes macOS uh, an app. Like I have all the power of macOS just at my fingertips wherever I am in my home because I have my Lunar Display plugged into a headless Mac Mini, um, and it just gives me... It just gives me the, the, the extra tools sometimes that I need to get something done. It allows me to go in and easily manage my Mac Mini, which uses some, uh, which is doing some home server-like tasks for me at the moment. So it's really, really amazing. Listeners of this show can get an exclusive 10% discount on Luna Display. Just go to L-U-N-A-D-I-S-P-L-A-Y.com and enter the promo code UPGRADE at checkout. That is LunarDisplay.com and the promo code UPGRADE at checkout for that 10%. Off. Our thanks to Lunar Display for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So let's talk about Touch ID and Face ID because the Galaxy S10, the reviews are out. Well, some of the reviews are out. There's actually no embargo on the S10, so right. people can publish their reviews whenever they want to. Um, and so there's been a couple of reviews for the touch, like the touch sensor and a couple of reviews against the touch sensor. So we spent a little bit of time last week on Connected, me and Federico, talking about the technology um, that, is, that is going into the S10. So this is a, a very different type of technology. It's called ultrasonic fingerprint scanning. So the uh, fingerprint sensor is embedded in the screen and it uses sound waves to detect uh, the, your fingerprint and unlock it. So what that means is you don't need to have any kind of button or any kind of sensor, it's embedded into the screen, so you can just put it right there behind the screen. And unlike some of the other in-screen fingerprint technology, uh, you don't need to shine any lights on it. You can actually unlock the phone while the phone's screen is off. So it's pretty cool. Um, but there has been some reviewers that do not like this, and there's been some reviewers that do like this, and I find that particularly interesting. So I read a couple of quotes for you, and we'll have links to these in the show notes. So Brian Chan at the New York Times says, my bumpy experience with the print sensor found up one conclusion. Face recognition is a more convenient method for unlocking phones, and Samsung is behind Apple in this area. Samsung does have face recognition stuff, but it's not very good. And Dan Seifert at The Verge says, that the fingerprint sensor is not as fast or reliable as the traditional capacitive fingerprint scanner on the back of the S9. The target area for the reader is rather small, and I had to be very deliberate with my finger placement to get it to work. But then I've seen a bunch of YouTube reviews, so from Jonathan Morrison at TOD Today, who shows that you can see it's super fast and reliable, and Marquez Brownlee, MKBHD, says that it is convenient. You can unlock it when the screen is off. He shows some phones side by side, and the S10's unlocking faster than them. It works with wet hands. I don't see, understand what's happening here. I'm seeing a lot of like uh, conversation happening on Twitter between journalists, right? What it looks like is either there are hardware quirks or this technology works better for some people than others. Hmm. But And you can throw into that um, personal preference too, right? Yes, because I, 100%. My, my, feeling, my feeling here, listening to lots of people talk about it and seeing lots of people write about it, is that they are that some people like fingerprint scanners more and some people like face id more yeah and it's not a a 100 percent like oh this is better like but you know and i would argue part of that is resistance to change i'm sure there are people who prefer putting digits into their phone than doing touch id those people are i interesting um but i'm sure there were some right where it's like i don't want to do the thing where i touch the thing and hold my thumb there i just put in the code and i go and it's like there's going to be some of that but i do believe that beyond that there is this 
Um, there are things ergonomically, like some people uh, have issues with maybe their, maybe their face ID scanning doesn't work as well. Maybe their face has something that makes it less uh, less you know liable to lock or more unreliable maybe they have a particular gesture that they got really comfortable with with uh, like putting their finger or thumb on their phone as they're taking it out of their pocket so that as soon as it's up it's it's uh it's working whereas with with face id you have to lift it up and then it scans you and then it opens um i vastly prefer face id to touch id but at the same time there's also a false dichotomy here because you could offer both if you wanted to. Like Apple theoretically could use this technology, this ultrasonic scanner technology, to put a fingerprint scanner under their screen and have Face ID and let you choose. Um, there are also some choices Apple made with Face ID that are really annoying, like the double tap Apple Pay button mm. thing, which I don't like. And I don't, and it doesn't feel necessary. That is one of the things for me that really, really makes me wish, miss, I should say, Touch ID. The way that all of the Apple Pay interactions are done. So, like, I've been traveling this week, so I've been getting lifts everywhere and stuff. And when the Apple Pay thing comes up and I've got to double tap and then look and wait for the animation, that's so much more cumbersome and slow than Touch ID used to be. Because with Touch ID, you just touched it and it was done, right? Like, that was it. Because... The, what is the action of me now reaching to press that side button that is all i would have needed to do is one of those taps and then it would have been completed and so like this is like every time you're using apple pay every time you're buying something from the store um i use apple pay a lot in london and it's much more frustrating to have to get the face id stuff to work than it would be with the touch id because touch id it's just got to be in my hand i don't have to have it in a perfect view and when i'm walking through a train station i'm not necessarily that keen or like that it's not as easy for me to just put my phone in front of my face as it would have been before to just touch the home button Um, like i love face id it is amazing technology and it mostly works great but it does still need ideal conditions like what this device of this technology to be the best that it should be, really, this seems quite simple to me. If I can see my phone, it should see me. That's what I want, right? Like, if I am it, if I am within arm's reach of my phone, and I can see it, I want it to be able to see me rather than me needing to like position myself or position the phone in such a way that it will unlock. Now, I know that this stuff is like that. That idea is probably still far away if it ever comes, but like that's the ideal, and I feel like. Touch ID met its ideal, right? And I think this is one of the things that, that, that makes people struggle with it. Touch ID got as good as that can be. Face ID is not as good as it could be. And I think this is where maybe there's some, some people that are a little bit unhappy with it. Ideally, Jason, I would like to have both technologies in an iPhone. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I don't, I don't miss Touch ID at all. <laughs> But I but the, get. But this, I think it's a, this is a one hundred. You mentioned it already. You said the, it's personal preference. It's yeah, not I think saying that's right. that Face ID is bad. I love Face ID on my iPad. It's incredible. I have no problems with it at all. But on my iPhone, it's not perfect. And some of the interactions that I frequently made with my iPhone was made worse by Face ID. Another point that Brian Chen made in his uh, New York Times review is that when you talk to the vendors about the security of these different techniques um it seems like 
Face ID is way more secure, that it's much harder to break um, than a fingerprint scanner. But, you know, we may be arguing about, like, ridiculously secure versus impossibly secure, and that for most people it doesn't matter. I do think, though, that um, what is really motivating, I think especially Chen, but but um, both those reviewers who didn't like it, the Verge reviewer too, is this perception that the that using cameras and and dot projectors to scan your face is a good technology that android phones and samsung phones have not bothered to implement and the you know basically their brian chan's point was basically like come on samsung just copy apple and i think that's not necessarily do away with the fingerprint scanner as much as it is the face scanner that android has is this ridiculous photo compare thing where you can put a mask on or put a picture of somebody in front of the camera and it'll unlock. It's really insecure. It's far less secure than the fingerprint scanner. And I think that's part of the conversation here is literally just um, this this uh, face unlock feature that is kicking around is a joke. And if you want to offer face unlock, you need to do the real thing, which is what yep. Apple is doing and not this really kind of bogus thing that you're doing. Um, but I, I agree in an ideal world. And of course, each one of these things costs, costs in size and space and money. Um, but that having multiple authentication options available is uh, it would be a good thing in the end, because I do think I'm starting to get the sense that there really are just people who prefer one and not the other. And now that we've lived with it for a little while, it's not as much about, I don't want to go to something new. I'm familiar with the old. And quite honestly, the thing about the Samsung thing is it's invisible. That's the amazing thing about it, right? Yeah. Is that you just put your finger on the screen and it unlocks. And we talked about that for Apple iPhones. They were trying that for a long time and they decided not to bother with it and just to skip ahead to face ID. But there is an argument to be made that, you know, we may have learned that, uh, it's better to have both, and it if is that's desirable the case, then Apple has to make a decision. Technology, like it looks super cool, and and it also enables other things. So, like Samsung's displays look amazing right now because they have those little basically the cutouts for the cameras. But you get bigger displays, and there's no notch, right? If you don't like the notch, you're going to be stuck with it on the iPhone for a long time because of Face ID. Yeah, Samsung but, doesn't have to do that. Yeah, but then again, if you're somebody who uses as as a uh, as uh, our chat room is pointing out right now. Um, if you have gloves, for example, yep. like face ID is great and touch ID is the worst. Yeah, of course. That's a, that's a great example. If you right? have your Very... face covered because it's also cold, well, you're still <laughs> screwed, aren't you? Like, I totally Maybe. get the glove idea, but there are many things, right, that go one way right. or another. And like, there, there are pros for touch ID and pros for face ID, and there are cons of each. I will yep. say one thing that has been, this is like completely personal experience thing, which has been so strange. I gave my mom an iPhone XR for Christmas. She has never complained to me about Face ID, and I can't believe that. I was, like, very concerned about moving my mom from Touch ID to Face ID. No complaints. Which I, you know, that is a big win for me, because I was like, this is going to be... That was the thing I was mostly worried about, so this is going to be a disaster. Because she was so used to Touch ID. She had her iPhone 6 for years. It was a long time, right? Since the iPhone 6 was new up until last year. Um but she seems to have got on board a face ID because it does work very well, right? It does. Um, but as I say, it, it just, I think it's a personal preference thing. I would like to see both. I actually think, you know, whilst I get the idea of like Apple would never bring back that technology because Apple never go backwards, like I get that point. 
I don't know. I feel like there could be some real. I feel like you could spin it as a benefit, consumer choice, because the technology is better. I yeah. don't think you that could, is completely out of the question. You could also. This is just a just a wild idea I'm throwing out there. You could also use this to differentiate high end and low end, and put this technology under, you know, under your iPhone, you know, maybe not 10R, but your SE or something like that, hmm. and be like, it's just got Touch ID in the screen. And and it would allow you to get rid of the buttons without a- having to add the whole Face ID sensor stack, and you can make a cheaper phone. Maybe there's something there too. But I agree on the high end stuff. Why not load it in and just say, yeah, you get it, you get it all, and you yeah. can use it either way. I do think though your point uh, points out to ways that Face ID is implemented on iOS that could be better. Like yes. that again to come back to the the Apple Pay thing. Like I get that Apple wants all these verifications to go through by by clicking the the side button. But uh, I'm with you. I think it's really annoying. I, I'm sure that they've got reasons. I'm sure they're like, well, no, clicking a hardware button is makes you not mistap and and buy something you won't and all that. But like, it feels um it 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 feels so much worse than the old approach where you just put your finger on the home button and you were done because you were both biometrically authenticating and approving. And now. You have to, you know, now it kind of happens backward and I don't know, it's, it, it feels like to me like it could be better. And that, that's an area of friction in face ID that wasn't there before. All right. This episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Eero. With Eero, you can build a Wi-Fi system that is perfectly tailored to your home. Considering the high bandwidth world that we live in today, you need a distributed system in your home to make sure that you can get the best speeds available to you so you can watch all of that streaming video content that you love in any room of the house and move around the house easily and not have the connection die. And with Eero, you get all of this because you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. It all starts with the second-gen Eero device, which has three 5 gigahertz radios, allowing for increased increased speed and range. It sits flat on any surface. It will allow you to connect over Ethernet or wirelessly, and then you have that wonderful connection throughout your home. And then you can expand the coverage by using Eero beacons. These are small devices that plug directly into your wall wherever you need them, allowing you to reach every single corner of your space. And Eero is also has Eero Plus now as well, which is designed to provide simple, reliable security to help defend all of the devices in your home from malware, phishing, and unsuitable content. Eero Plus can automatically tag sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, so you'll have powerful parental controls right at your fingertips. It includes ad-blocking functionality to help improve load times for websites that are full of privacy-invading ad tracking, and it's also possible to have Eero Plus check the sites that you visit against a database of millions of unknown threats to prevent you from malicious stuff. Eero Plus also includes subscriptions to One Password, Malwarebytes, and Encrypt.me as well. Jason Snell, could you tell me something about your Eero device that you have at home? Well, I have all of the uh, all of the things, right? I've oh, got yeah. the connected door to the door lock, and I've got a Wi-Fi robot that vacuums my uh-huh. floor, and like there are so many different devices all over the house. I've got, um, you know, cameras, and there's just there's a lot, and so I need to have my Wi-Fi everywhere, even more than I did before. I don't have a very large house, but I do have corners of it that were harder to get yep. Wi-Fi to that where I ended up putting cameras or other devices and, and so then now you're relying my needs, on it right like yeah, if you're right. putting the camera so, there you need to know you have a connection there and it used to be just where i would go with with a an ipad right or somebody in my family would go with an ipad or a laptop but now it's all of those other devices too where i want them 
you know, also on the internet all the time, it needs to be a reliable connection. And that's the thing that I have liked about Eero is that I have the multiple Eero devices. They all work together. It was easy to set up and the handoffs are all seamless. So basically I, instead of just making sure that like the Wi-Fi gets to my backyard so I can sit out there in the summertime, it now gets to all the different corners of the house where the, the constellation of uh, internet of things devices are. And mm-hmm. so that's been my favorite thing about it. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Get $100 of the Eero base unit and two beacons package and a year of Eero Plus by going to Eero.com slash Ahoy and at checkout, use the promo code Ahoy. That's E-E-R-O dot com slash A-H-O-Y, Eero.com slash Ahoy. And the code Ahoy for $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package with one year of Eero Plus thrown in too. Our thanks to Eero for their support of this show and Relay FM. And it's time for some hashtag ask upgrade questions. And Jason, any lasers? <laughs> oh, there was a delay on the lasers because they were clearly very powerful today. The lasers were, the last couple of weeks, were gearing up for a giant laser explosion, apparently. That was sorry very good. To all, sorry to all fans of this stupid Ask Upgrade lasers hey. who wrote in to complain hey. that I did not give the lasers That's not out. stupid. I won't accept that. I won't accept mm-hmm. that for one moment, sir. Not one moment. Okay. First question comes from Todd. Todd wants to know, uh, do you think that Apple's TV service will have a skip intro feature? (laughs) And a bonus question to this, do we skip the intros on TV shows on Netflix? Oh, Todd, Todd. I... How shall I put this? I sometimes skip the intros. I do. If it's a show I watch a lot. If I'm binging a TV show... Yep. I'm not going to watch the intro every single time. If I'm watching four episodes of a show in a row, I don't need to see the opening credits every time. I'm so sorry. I agree with that. For people that that upsets, but like, come on. For people who are in the credits like Todd is. Yeah, I mean like, but you know, it it, it also depends. If the show has like a really good opening, so like when we watched True Detective, Mm -hmm. the first season, binge the whole thing, but the opening was so good, I'd watch it every time. But some shows, like House of Cards, oh my God. House of Cards is opening is the worst thing in the world. This is what I was going to say is it is not just about binging for me because I don't do I, do. I am, of course, as, as some people know, a big fan of the slow binge, which is you watch like an episode a day. Slow binge? I've never, yeah, the, the slow <laughs> I don't binge. think I've ever heard you say that before. Oh, yeah. That's, I, I talk about it on TV Talk Machine all okay. the time. Big fan of the slow binge. I, I'm not somebody who's going to sit down and watch four episodes of a show in a row. It's just never going to happen. I have other things going on in my life. But I will I will watch one or two and then like watch another one the next day and another one the next day. And, and that's what I call the slow binge. I recommend it. In fact, sometimes I will slow binge like two or three things at once. So I assemble a little lineup of shows and I watch one episode of each every night. It's great. Anyway, uh, be that as it may, uh, I think the other issue is what you hit on, which is some intros are good (laughs) and some are long and boring and I don't need to see them again. And that varies from show to show. There are shows that I love that have boring intros, uh, but there are also shows that have great intros and I watch it every time and it gets me in the mood for the show. It really depends. Like I don't skip the Game of Thrones intro, right? Because I love it. The music gets me excited and they show different things on the map every time that they're little Easter eggs and like, that's great. But there are other shows where, you know, it's the same every time and it's kind of long and it's really boring and I don't particularly love the music and it doesn't get me into the show and um, and I, I don't bother. Like uh, Travelers on Netflix, which is a show I really like, um, and that is an opening sequence that I really don't like and it's super boring and I don't watch it. So, yeah. 
JRAF asks, do you think that an AirPlay 2 dongle is still on the horizon for Apple? So this would allow you to watch uh, content from your device, like a Chromecast, for example. We spoke about that before. Uh, well, I never thought it was definitely on the horizon, right? There was a report that Apple was considering it, which is the weakest of Apple rumors. Yeah. But we also <laughs> the... spoke about the fact that we thought it could happen, right? That we, we thought that it made sense. This was before Apple announced all of the TV integrations. that it had, Exactly, right? exactly. So my hope is that they will do something. Um, I'm not sure AirPlay 2 dongle is the way to go. I would really like it if they would just do a low-cost thing that actually ran <laughs> yeah, all right. so this is the, the TV app. I would much prefer a cheaper, much, much cheaper Apple TV, like a Fire TV stick, but I don't think it's yeah. going to be that if they do it. I think they're more likely to do a have your iPhone send something. Yeah, it could thing. be. It could be. So I think this is a possibility. It also depends on how what deals they're making with uh, third-party hardware because what if AirPlay 2 just shows up everywhere? Then they don't need to do it because then then you can li- literally just go buy a Roku box for for twenty five bucks. Yeah, or if they just do what they did with Samsung with more people, so like the Amazon Fire TV stick gets Apple TV, and you know you just moves on from there. Either way, whether it's AirPlay two or the or TV app stuff, mm-hmm. um, but they they're going to need to make that with third party hardware manufacturers, right? Not just TV people for it yeah, to exactly. work because because it doesn't matter if Apple offers an AirPlay 2 dongle or a cheap Apple TV if you can point at an Amazon Fire Stick or a, a Roku, you know, little $35 Roku thing and say you can get it there. Then Apple doesn't need to make it. Our next question comes from Dan. Dan says, I have a mid-2012 non-retina MacBook Pro with 4 gigabytes of RAM and a spinning disk hard drive. It's getting pretty slow, but I don't want to buy a new one just yet. It's only used for the homework for the kids. Would an SSD be enough to boost its performance or would more RAM be the thing to give it a significant boost? I feel like an SSD, right? I feel like an SSD is probably going to be the thing you'll notice the most. Storage is usually the limiting factor. I think an SSD is going to help you more. I think in almost any case, an SSD from a spinning disk is going to help you the most. Yep, I think so too. Uh, You know, it's an old machine, so it's still going to feel old in places, but that to putting that putting that SSD in it will be good. Didn't you do this? You, you do this for like your mom's laptop or something? Yeah, uh, and then I sold it to a college student. Yeah, I, I took her laptop and I, I pulled the old drive out of it. I put in I did put in some more RAM, but I also put in an SSD and it ran way better then oh. because it was, even though it was an older laptop, mm-hmm. it was um, running on an SSD and it felt way faster. Oh, look at that. I just found it on six colors. So I'll put it in the show notes so people oh. can see that for reference too if they want. Nice, good times. Nicholas asks, do you feel that the battery on your new iPad Pros drains faster than the older ones? If so, could it be the Apple Pencil draining the battery faster as it's constantly attached? I don't have noticed any battery changes. Me um, neither. And, I don't, and the Apple Pencil's battery would not be big enough to take a significant drain. So if you're having issues, maybe you should take it and have Apple look at it. Um, my iPad Pro still gives me as much power as the old one did. So if you're seeing yeah. significant changes, then maybe you need to get that checked out. And Gary asks, which would be better for video editing, a 12.9-inch iPad Pro or a 13-inch MacBook Pro? The 15-inch is beyond my budget. Well, at this point, um, I think Pro. my answer is the MacBook Pro. Yeah. Because as much as I like the iPad Pro, I I, I think the MacBook Pro has... It has more uh, options for software. ...has tried and true video editing yeah. options on there, and that's what you should go with. I would love to be able to say that the iPad Pro is a uh, is you know a straight up well, either a choice or pick between the two but there while there are video editing apps on the iPad I think you should get a MacBook Pro for video editing I wouldn't yeah. video 
edit on the iPad at this point. Maybe one day, but if you need Maybe to make day. that decision right now, that choice is a MacBook Pro for sure. I think so. I agree. All right, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Upgrade. Thanks so much to our sponsors, FreshBooks, Eero, and Luna Display, but mostly thank you for listening. If you would like to send in a question for us to answer at the end of the show, just send in a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, and then maybe we'll be included for a future episode. But if you want to help open the show, the hashtag SnellTalk is the best way to do that. You can find us online. Uh, Jason is at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L on Twitter. And he's over at sixcolors.com and theincomparable.com. Find me on Instagram. I'm imike, I-M-Y-K-E. I'm on Twitter there as well, too. Um, you can find this show and many others at relay.fm slash shows. I'm sure there'll be something else uh, that you can pick. Jason, I know you host uh, Download here on Relay FM. What do you think is going to be coming up on Download this week? Oh, what uh, whatever happens Whatever happens this week will be on download this week. We yeah. don't even know yet because it's all about what happens this week. I love I, that. I don't know. It's, this is the mystery, the mystery mm-hmm. of technology news. But yep. that what you will find on download is not just Apple. You'll find uh, stories about the whole technology yeah. uh, industry. We spent a lot of time launch. on Android phones the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah, as you would, right? Motor World yep. Congress, all that kind of stuff. So if you're looking to find out more about uh, not just the foldable phones... That's where you'll be able to find it there on download here on Relay FM. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. You know, if we were a Netflix show, this is the moment where we, the credits would zip into the uh, into the corner and Five, it would start counting down to four, play another show. Three, but two, I don't like it. One, I don't want to skip the credits. One, it's over. Bye, Mike.